thing as being too Jewish. Thank you very much. Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Michael Twitty, winner of the Jewish Book of the Year, author of Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2jewishradio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2jewishradio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. It's Rodeo Week here in Tucson, Arizona, in the heart of the Wild West, where I live. So we need to explore some Jewish Western themes here on 2Jewish this morning. You know, you can't really understand what a big deal Rodeo Week is here in Tucson unless you live here or have lived here for at least a couple of years or maybe 20 plus years like me. Here in Tucson, Rodeo Week consists of a giant parade, the largest non-motorized parade in the world, we are told. Lots of horses and wagons and floats pulled by horses, all of which is followed by, oh yeah, marching bands, don't forget those, all of which is followed by, shockingly, a rodeo of multiple days and both amateur and professional levels. We let kids out of school for a couple days to go to the parade and to wear cowboy boots and hats and generally pretend that we still have some connection to the folks who rode horses and tamed the Wild West. Actually, some of us still ride horses, and this Shabbat will be Rodeo Shabbat at Congregation Beit Simcha, and we'll wear cowboy hats and serapes and all of that. Look, when you live in the heart of the West, not far from Tombstone in what was Apache country not much over a century ago, rodeo can still seem like a pretty big deal. In fact, the last act of the famous shootout at the OK Corral took place in the Tucson Rail Yards when legendary OK Corral gunslinger and lawman Wyatt Earp gunned down the very last of the gang that had killed his brother. You might not immediately associate Jews and cowboys, but there were quite a number of Jews in the Old West. White Earp's common-law wife, well, his last one anyway, was a Jewish woman named Josephine Marcus. He met her in Tombstone. And there were Jewish mayors of Tucson way back, and Jewish sheriffs, and even Jewish outlaws. If you aren't so sure of that, go and visit Boot Hill's Jewish Cemetery in Tombstone. It's not far from the main Boot Hill in Tombstone, where the victims of the O.K. Corral shootout are theoretically buried, among other outlaws. And it has its own Jewish character, and some Jewish outlaws buried there, too. And, of course, in addition to the extraordinarily colorful outlaws and lawmen and such, there were Jewish merchants, including some of my ancestors, the Reinhardts. They had a store in the gold country near Auburn, California, before the Civil War. They sold various items, including dungaree trousers there. Eventually, the newly invented ones with rivets, produced by a German-Jewish entrepreneur named Levi Strauss. I'm pretty sure some people still wear that brand, you know, Levi's. 
And so, in honor of all those Jewish cowboys, merchants, mayors, sheriffs, characters, outlaws, here's a less than perfectly accurate musical version of another one of those legendary Jewish characters of the Old West. Long before saddles blazed across the West, there was the Ballad of Irving. He was short and fat and rode out of the West with a Mogan David on his silver vest. He was mean and nasty right clear through, which was kind of weird, because he was yellow, too. They called him Irving. Big Irving. Big short Irving. Big short fat Irving. The 142nd fastest gun in the West. He came from the old barn mitzvah spread with a 10-gallon yarmulke on his head. He always followed his mother's wishes. Even on the range, he used two sets of dishes. Irving. Big fat Irving. Big sissy Irving. The 142nd fastest gun in the West. Irving. 141 could draw faster than he, but Irving was looking for 143. Walked in the Saul Saloon like a man insane and ordered three fingers of two cents plain. Irving. Big fat Irving. Big sport Irving. The 142nd fastest gun in the West. James boys was coming on a train at first son and the town said, Irving, we need your gun. Well, that train pulled in at the break of dawn. Irving's gun was there, but Irving was gone. Irving. Big fat Irving. Big help Irving. The 142nd fastest gun in the West. Finally, Irving got three slugs in the belly. It was right outside the frontier deli. He was sitting there twirling his gun around, and Butterfingers Irving gunned himself down. Irving. Big fat Irving. Big dum-dum Irving. Big dum-dum dead Irving. The 142nd fastest gun in the West. was The Ballad of Irving, now a perennial two-Jewish classic all by itself. It's about being Jewish in the Wild West. By the way, my dad actually produced a whole bunch of Westerns back in the early days of TV. A Jewish guy from Cincinnati, Ohio, producing Cisco Kid. And while it's Rodeo Week, it is also the beginning this week of the Hebrew month of Adar, the month when we celebrate the delightful festival and fun festival of Purim. At Beit Simcha, my own congregation, we decided to reclaim Purim from the kids, at least for one night. Saturday night, March 4th, we'll celebrate Purim for grown-ups with gambling games, adult beverages, a tasting of whiskeys, and a risque Purim musical, Goys and Delis, based on the tales of Damon Runyon, and of course the Broadway play Guys and Dolls, created by Joe Swirling, Abe Burroughs, and Frank Lesser, 
all Jewish. In any case, the appropriate tune to play us in this month is Misha Nichnas Adar Marbim Besimcha. When you enter the month of Adar, it's time to multiply joy. the singer Zusha welcoming us to the month of Purim. Coming up Saturday night, March 4th, our pre-Purim for Grown Ups 2 at Congregation Beit Simcha. And then the traditional Megillah reading Monday night, March 6th. Don't miss all the Purim fun to come. Our guest this morning on Two Jewish This Morning, return visit, is Michael Twitty, an African-American food expert who has pioneered kosher versions of both black classic foods and Jewish foods with extraordinary African and Caribbean influences. Michael Twitty's writing on both his Afro-Jewish identity and food is terrific. He just won the National Jewish Book Award for Best Book Overall. Meet Michael Twitty in a couple moments when we come back here on Too Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino Del Sol. The soul of Tucson, enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. We are delighted to welcome the two Jewish our guests this morning. Michael Twitty is, I think, a unique figure in the American Jewish landscape. He's the author of Kosher Soul, the Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew, which just won the National Jewish Book Award as the Book of the Year. So uh, let me start by saying Mazel Tov. Thank you so much for that. You know, your whole approach to food is, I think... Um, uh, important for people to hear. Tell us a little bit, coming from an African-American food tradition, how that becomes kosher and, and how you think about it. So uh, the first and foremost thing is that food is not just ingredients, technique, methods, and hospitality. I think that's what most people think of an aesthetic. Most people think of food as when you say to somebody, I work in food, their mind automatically goes to a restaurateur or food critic. And while very formal, that isn't the way we live through our daily existence. From the perspective of both communities, African-American and um, Jewish, or even wider, Jewish diaspora and African-Atlantic in that convention, food plays a very important role in 
making sure that we as oppressed, historically oppressed and marginalized people have a way to not only pass down the culture, honor our history, but also love each other through times of trauma. So um, I embrace that on both sides. And, you know, I don't really, <laughs> I, I guess I see Kashrut in, in this as less of a structure than a guideline that allows for incredible creativity. And, you know, I, I have a, a, a question for you. It has always seemed to me that Jewish food was created by people who could only afford the cheapest cuts of meat, the the least expensive vegetables. That's why, you know, brisket, which is a highlight of Jewish food, well, you have to cook it forever, right? And um, latkes, are, they're basically potatoes and onions, the cheapest possible things that you can get. You can get them in the winter and things like that. Do We, we share that with African-American cuisine, right? Yeah, I mean, right? if you look at it from the perspective of a lot of Jewish cuisine and a lot of African-American cuisine, uh, I think the better way to look at it is these are cuisines of um, not just meat do, but a loving frugality. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is is not used unless it can be used. It's it's a it's a process of understanding everything in your environment. I think in particular for Ashkenazi cuisine, one thing people forget is that the food didn't start in the Lower East Side. There's no right. land. No resources, no nature. You mean you mean they weren't like catching herring on Houston Street, is what you're saying? I mean, that was the redaction of thousands of miles, a dozen countries, and you know, several two millennia, all in one crowded area of New York. Um, and so, it's set a certain telling example. In the same way that sometimes when um, black folks were leaving the Jim Crow South, that was the redaction of millennia of centuries of the land, access, and nature, and seasons, and all of that. So we have to be able to distinguish between, you know, what the ancestors cooked and lived and their birth circumstances versus those that didn't have. But I think this observation stands solid in the sense of both groups have had times of lack and want. And that lack and want isn't just, you know, impoverishment. It's, 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 the cruelty is the point. We will talk much more with Michael Twitty, who is uh, the expert on Afro-American kosher food, I would say, and the author of the terrific book, Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew. And we come back in a moment here on To Jewish. Congregation Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson and the Catalina Foothills, celebrates a great array of services, classes, and events this winter and spring. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. A progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the Foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in person in our sanctuary. Call 520-276-5675 for more information. 
information. Religious school is going for school-aged children and grandchildren. Our fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah program, Torah tykes, confirmation, teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org to sign up. Beit Simcha services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Come in person Friday night or Saturday morning, Friday night, 6.30 p.m. Shabbat celebration services, followed by Noneg Shabbat. Saturday morning, Torah studies at 9 a.m., Shabbat morning services at 10 a.m., all with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading them in a kiddish afterwards. You can also come online. Our Facebook page is B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson, Beit Simcha Tucson. Our musical services are in person and by virtual experience. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. Go to those by going to BeitSimchaTucson.org. Purim is coming up. Join us for the raucous, delightful holiday when all restrictions are lifted at our Purim for Grown Ups 2 bigger and better. We'll feature gourmet humantash and wine, beer, spirits, a fabulous risque Purim parody show, gambling for prizes, and much more. Saturday night, March 4th, at 7.30 p.m., all for a good cause. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. For more information about Congregation Beit Simcha, to come to services, our great religious school and Torah Tykes programs, bar and bat mitzvah, confirmation and high school programs, rich array of adult education academy courses taught live and on Zoom, all of them, and all of our services in person and on Facebook, go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org, or call 520-276-5675, that's 520 520- Two seven six five six seven five Beit Simcha Tucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest growing and most vibrant and vital Jewish congregation in all of Southern Arizona in our fifth year. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, Kfetrikfell, please email us at two Jewish Radio eighteen at gmail.com or visit our website, two Jewish Radio.com, T O O Jewish Radio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, T O O Jewish Radio.com, two Jewish Radio.com, streaming us from there, or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Stores, very popular Jewish podcasts. Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, over 200,000 downloads on Podbean and on Spotify, too. Post a rating, review to Jewish, wherever you are listening to our podcast, those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. 
While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. So the term Mongol uh, has a lot of resonance for people that think about history and they're thought of as not only, you know, Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan and rulers of a giant empire, but they actually had interactions with Jews and important interactions that go back 700 years or so. Um, Let's talk about it a little bit. Yeah, they had very important impacts, a variety of impacts on Jewish history. But the first thing is when you started with the word Mongol as opposed to Mongolian, you know, there's also the word mongoloid, and there's a very interesting history to that. That's a colloquial form of referring to somebody who has Down syndrome. And we used to regard the Mongolians as a highly civilized race. They created the largest land empire that not only in Asia, but all the way from like Sinai to the Korean Peninsula and from the Polish frontier to Vietnam. So let's say Eurasia. And they created the first passport, the first effectively credit card, universal free education. They were very progressive in many ways. But as the great age of imperialism marched forward and Britain and France and for that matter, Spain and Portugal and the Netherlands created these large imperial empires based on the exploitation of supposedly inferior races, we had to change our vision of the Mongols. And one of the many not so subtle ways in which we did this was by referring to Down syndrome people as Mongoloids. It's a way of bringing down the whole image of it's Mongol, Mongolian, yeah. whatever. Yeah, it's and pejorative. Right? It goes hand in hand with phrases like the white man's burden right. or what the French called La mission civilisatrice, right. the civilizing mission. To the obviously primitives right. around the world, right. right? Ever since the peak of the Mongol period, which was the middle of the 13th century, so roughly 1250, the year they raised Baghdad to the ground, ever since then, there have always been at least some Jews in the Mongolian capital, Ulaanbaatar. And by some, I mean anywhere between 50 and 1,000. Many of them were... Russian Jews or European Jews, Ashkenazic Jews, who came east. Some probably originally came as an offshoot of the Silk Route because Mongolia is not really on the main road, but it's not that far away. But the the major impact goes back into Islamic history and the closely interlinked Jewish history in Baghdad, which was the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate, which ruled the Islamic world for many centuries, there was a very large Jewish community dating back to the time of the destruction of the first temple. And that community was instructed by the Muslim caliphs 
to appoint an exilarch, a ruler of all the Jews in exile. Reish so Galuta, have, he was called. Right, right? exactly. Yep. So they, they could have one interlocutor between world Jewry and the Muslim caliph. And that office existed, although it had different degrees of importance, for quite a few centuries. Yeah, long time. After the destruction of the great academies in Bavel and all the high marks of Jewish life, there was still an office of Exilarch until the Mongolians came, raised Baghdad in 1250, and ended the Arab Caliphate. That was the end. The Caliphate eventually was transferred to the Turks, first the Seljuks, then the Ottomans, and the site of the caliphate was moved to Constantinople. So if there would have been an exilarch, it would have been in Constantinople yeah. and no longer and no, in Baghdad. And no longer in Baghdad. It's fascinating. The Mongols had that impact on, on really on Jewish life. The exilarch was, um, even after the peak and long past the peak, the exilarch was still a, a major figure, most famous for um, engaging in serious controversies with, say, Maimonides, uh, the greatest figure in the Jewish world in the Middle Ages, perhaps. Um, it's fascinating stuff. And it was the Mongols who ended the Exilarchate, if you will. Right. Fascinating. Exactly. Thanks so much, Tom. We will talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie new, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. 80-year-old Bessie bursts into the rec room at her Florida retirement home. She holds her clenched fist in the air and announces, Anyone who can guess what's in my hand can have relations with me tonight. An elderly gentleman shouts out, Is it an elephant? Bessie thinks for a moment and says, Close enough. That was the old Jewish joke of the week. Special feature of Two Jewish just for you. You should live and be well and guess well and in the spirit of Purim coming up in a couple weeks. And now a word of Torah. In a mitzvah at the heart of Jewish religious experience today, in our portion of Truma this week, God commands the Israelites, Asuli Mikdash v'shachanti betocham. Build me a sanctuary, and I will dwell among you. With this statement, the book of Exodus moves from practical laws to ritual ones. The plans for the creation of a tabernacle in the wilderness, first site of national prayer, and the directions for building the Ark of the Covenant are explained and detailed. In order to create the new central shrine for worship, the place which God's presence will actually inhabit, Moses calls on the people of Israel to donate materials from the best of what they have, what comes to be called a truma offering. And a remarkable thing happens. When the people are asked to donate gifts to build the holy structures needed to worship God, they come forward immediately and give much more than is required. Moses actually has to ask the Israelites to stop bringing so much gold and silver and so many precious fabrics. This marks the first and only time in history when a temple building campaign brought in much more than was asked for or required. May it occur again sometime soon, perhaps right here in the northwest of Tucson. In any case, the word for this experience is truma, a free will offering, a gift to God out of the goodness of the heart. 
This generous free will offering is a powerful thing indeed. For when it is constructed, the tabernacle in the wilderness, built from such free generosity, immediately is filled with God's presence. When we give freely of ourselves to our temples today, in time, love, care, or money, we seek to recreate that truma, that free will offering, the full gift of heart and hand of our ancestors in Moses' time. And when we succeed in doing so, we too will bring God's presence and love into our lives. The great Israeli poet Yehuda Amichai wrote beautifully and sensuously on the subject of the synagogue in his final book, Open, Closed, Open. I studied love in the sanctuary of my childhood. I sang Come Sabbath Bride on Friday nights with the bridegroom's fever. I practiced longing for the days of the Messiah. I conducted yearning drills for the days of yore that will not return. The cantor serenades his love out of the depths. Kaddish is recited over lovers who stay together. The male bird dresses up in a blaze of color, and we dress the rolled-up Torah scrolls in silken petticoats and gowns of embroidered velvet held up by narrow shoulder straps. And we kiss them as they are passed around the synagogue, stroking them as they pass, as they pass, as we pass. May we each find love of God and holiness in our own temples, sanctuaries. When we come back in a moment, Afro-Jewish culinary expert Michael Twitty will share some of his favorite Jewish foods with us. You will be surprised and delighted by them. Find out what makes them unique when we return in a moment here on Two Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. oldest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible is about to go on sale and it will likely be the most expensive book or even document ever sold. Written by a single Jewish scribe on 400 pages of parchment some 1100 years ago, the Codex Sassoon is estimated to fetch 30 to 50 million dollars when it will be sold by Sotheby's auction house this May. Before then, the book will embark on a worldwide tour, including stops in London, Tel Aviv, and elsewhere. Those who view it will get to lay eyes on one of only two known ancient manuscripts comprising almost the entire Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, along with the Aleppo Codex, which is incomplete after hundreds of pages went missing in the 20th century during Arab rioting against Jews. The Sassoon Codex is missing only a few pages from the book of Genesis, and is otherwise a complete copy of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. The Aleppo Codex had long been thought to be the oldest surviving full copy of the Bible, but recent carbon dating now identifies the Sassoon Codex is actually older, perhaps a century older. Now that the Sassoon Codex has been definitively dated as the earliest, most complete text of its kind, it stands as a critical link from the ancient Hebrew oral tradition to the modern accepted form of the Hebrew Bible that remains the standardized version used today, said Richard Austin, Sotheby's global head of books and manuscripts. 
The Codex Sassoon is named after book collector David Solomon Sassoon of the famed Iraqi Jewish family, the Sassoons, who acquired it in 1929 for 350 British pounds. That's the equivalent of about $28,000 today. That is some appreciation, even more than sports teams. It resurfaced in the 1920s after disappearing for some 600 years. Sassoon added his own bookplate to the inside cover of the binding of the Sassoon Codex, extending a centuries-long string of inscriptions, distailing the book's Jewish ownership, much of it throughout what is present-day Syria. The record doesn't show what happened between when the synagogue where it had been housed was destroyed and Sassoon's acquisition. The Codex Sassoon is the oldest, most complete literary link between the ancient oral tradition of Tanakh and the modern rabbinic tradition. But for the last century, the Sassoon Codex has been in private collections. Other books near its caliber, which are owned by major museums and are on display, include the Aleppo Codex, which I mentioned before, 40% of whose pages were lost during those Arab riots. That can be viewed at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. A later but more complete copy, the Leningrad Codex, is still on display in Russia. The Sassoon Codex's latest owner is Jackie Safra, part of the storied Jewish banking family, who paid for carbon dating that put its age at about 1,100 years old, around the year 900. The book was briefly displayed at the British Museum in 1982. Its value will not be determined until after the auction, May 16th, but Sotheby's officials said they believed its final price could top the $43.2 million that the CEO of a hedge fund paid back in 2021 for a first edition copy of the U.S. Constitution sold by the same auction house. So, if you have a spare $50 million lying around somewhere, now's your chance to have what is certainly the most important extant book in Jewish history, and one of the most important in all of human history, in your own private collection. One of the Israeli teams dispatched to Turkey to help after the devastating earthquakes there has headed home, after it was informed about a concrete and immediate terrorist threat against them. United Hatzalah told its team of roughly two dozen personnel in Turkey to end their rescue mission and leave the country, the emergency services organization announced. Because of a shortage of available planes to evacuate them, philanthropist Miriam Adelson donated her private jet to facilitate the evacuation. We knew that there was a certain level of risk sending our team to this area of Turkey, close to the Syrian border, but we took the necessary steps to mitigate the threat for the sake of our life-saving mission, said Dov Meisel, the group's vice president of operations. Unfortunately, we've just received intelligence of a concrete and immediate threat on the Israeli delegation. We have to put the security of our own personnel first. Meisel also said the Hatzalah team had rescued about 15 people since arriving in Turkey shortly after the earthquakes. The official death toll stands at well over 30,000 and will continue to rise. More than 500 Israelis have traveled to Turkey to help in rescue and recovery. The IDF team, the Israeli Defense Forces team, says it rescued 19 people from the rubble, providing medical care to more than 180 others. It was also responsible for locating the bodies of Saul and Fortuna Chenidiolu, stalwarts of Antakya's nearly 2,500-year-old Jewish community that was known as Antioch, who died when their apartment building collapsed in the earthquakes. 
The Israeli delegations have gotten the express permission of Israel's Ashkenazi chief rabbi, David Lau, to work through Shabbat as the window for rescues and saving lives closed. The IDF medical team and the team from a third group, Israel, will remain in Turkey. Israel, at times, has been warned of plots targeting Israelis and Jews in Turkey. Last summer, Israel evacuated its citizens from Istanbul after warning of an Iranian plot against Israelis there. The day before the terrible earthquake, police in Istanbul arrested 15 people they said were part of an ISIS plot targeting synagogues in Istanbul. The earthquake was the most destructive in eastern Turkey, close to the border of Syria, Israel's enemy and home to many terrorist strongholds. I've been in that part of Turkey, in Şanlıurfa, and there was extensive damage there as well. We pray for the survivors, and we are grateful for the work of these Israeli organizations. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews around the world. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, conservative, and orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome back to Two Jewish, our guest this morning. Michael Twitty is a remarkable figure on the culinary, culinary, I always say that wrong, on the culinary scene, uh, the author of Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew, which just won the National Jewish Book Award, is the best Jewish book of the year. Um, By the way, how does that feel? (laughs) It was, uh, I was in Toronto uh, about to do a presentation for the Prostum and JCC, and my whole day was shot because I found out. And I guess I guess the biggest thing for me is being the first black officer awarded is very powerful and very important to me. It's incredible. And, it, you know, look, do you know how many Jewish books a year are written and published? I mean, <laughs> like it says in Ecclesiastes, of the making of books, there is no end. Of the making of Jewish books, there's really no end. 
Um, in creating um, this book, you know, it's not a it's not a cookbook, right? It's it's um, well, what would how would you describe it? It's a food memoir with elements of food history social critique and recipes. You dig deep into your families, into your mishpacha, as you put it, into your family history, um, and, which is interesting and diverse. Tell us a little bit about it. The precursor to the to kosher soul is the cooking gene. The cooking gene is me on the search for my family roots and food routes and me, Old South, by way of Africa, from Africa to America, from slavery to freedom. And it also introduce some of the themes in kosher soul in the sense of the notions of family, what is family, what is peoplehood. And when I did that initially, a publisher who I was courting to, to work with me on the book, they loved everything but the Jewish part. And in fact told me, um, and these, and the editor who was gatekeeping uh, was Ashkenazi American Jewish woman. Hey, Michael, it's too Jewish. Too Jewish, right. And also, there was some suspicion about whether or not I was authentic, and hmm. therefore, my agent didn't have an didn't have an articulate way to tell me that basically they thought I was like I was some um, strange kind of reverse Kanye, like a philo semite who was pretending to be Jewish or something. Exactly, yeah, it was something weird, and it really made me angry because by that point, I had taught Hebrew school. I had I had been I'm I've married people, buried people, welcomed babies into the world, taking care of, of, of our elders, taught our kids, celebrated, I don't know how many satyrs. I, I mean, no, no. How many aliyot? How many times gifts of How many times have I fasted? And, and not just that, but, you know, genuinely been a part of a people and a community. And to be told that, you know, telling my whole story wasn't okay, wasn't salable, wasn't important, wasn't meaningful. It drove me. It drove me. I didn't. I didn't work with them. And eventually, I had a nice little talk with um, their um, supervisor, or their, their boss over that publisher, because another black author who had worked with them, who had been in Italy for some time, was not given proper due credit for her work on a book on Italian cooking. And it was because the same editor was like, "Well, you know, you're <laughs> no one's going to buy this book by this black girl." talking about being in Italy. And I'm like, what a jerk. You know, this is, this is you know, we, you really do mean that America is the land of possibility. Then America has room for black expatriates who set up shop in Italy and can tell you anything you want to know about Italian cooking. And it has room for African-American Jews who also happen to be grounded in their African-American heritage, but also can speak to Jewish culture, food, politics, and issues outside of the usual range of people expect from an African-American. And so I'm really proud of the fact that I pushed through and I had my Sandy Koufax moment <laughs> with the cooking gene, but also was able to get this book out and say, yes, we're out here. Yes, we're diverse people. Yes, we're an uh, uh, arrogant within the Jewish people, but also an arrogant within African-American peoplehood. And that's fine. You know, there, there's a passage in this book that really stuck with me in which you talk about how being Jewish is similar to being black. Black peoplehood isn't a color. It, it's a complex braid of how we look, but also where we've been and where we've traveled and all the other aspects of culture that have attract, attached to us over the years. 
And that, that's an interest. Can you can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. It's a it's kind of a um, a theory, uh, a set of ideas across a number of chapters. For example, one that you didn't um, mention, and that's okay, is the one about queerness. Yeah. People assume that queerness is always about sexuality or whatever. It's not. It's also how one or one's culture is viewed in in the lens of the majority normative culture in a given area. That's a very frequent theme in both black and Jewish cultures in the West, is the idea that, you know, the expectation of assimilation, but this, even under those terms, the people are still different, unique, special, and without them, there is no drive in the culture. But they don't say that part. They just say that you're weird, you're odd. They use those differences against you. And the other part is that when you are global, when you are uh, people of migration, when you are people who have been exiled, when you're people who have, who have struggled to return, when you're people who have rubbed elbows with the other people who are on the margin, the Roma, the indigenous, the American, et cetera, et cetera, there is a very powerful sort of like <laughs> rolling stone gathering material as it rolls down or up what the miracle may be in those cultures. So I see that very common sort of like thing being a part of both worlds, not to mention the fact that when you're both in India and both in East Asia and both in North Africa and both in Renaissance Europe and both in the early Americas and you're both marginalized, you're both oppressed and you're both seeking a new opportunity, how can you not rub elbows? How can you not exchange culture? And how can you not see each other in each other? This is a difficult um, question. You, you mentioned them seeing you as kind of a reverse Kanye uh, and I'll just share a little bit. My mom taught in an uh, inner city school for 30 some years uh, and had, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a very integrated setting in Southern California, Los Angeles. It seems to me that there's been an increase in an anti-Jewish feeling in the black culture in America over the last 20 or 30 years. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I think it, it's, you know, it's a very kind of like, diversified distaste. I don't think there's one source. You notice that there's very little um, uh, old-school Farrakhan dislike in Kanye's issues. It's not the same. Yeah. And at the same point in time, you have the introduction of the one of the various groups of black Hebrew Israelites. Now, they're not all the same group, and you know, you'll notice some say Ethiopian Hebrew, they're much closer to uh, uh, mainstream Judaism, and then there's black Israelites who are basically Christian. And look, unfortunately, nobody's even brought up the fact that, I mean, outside the Jewish community perhaps, that these guys are nothing but, you know, spiritual, religious, and cultural appropriators. Absolutely. They're, they're not, they're, they have no legitimate, you know, statement to ask, to make, to, to affirm about Judaism. And every time you talk about Judaism, they pull out a King James Bible. No one told them that wasn't Judaism. Right. right. So this is why it's so important to inform and have impactful voices of Jews of color, um, especially Jews of African descent, to say, you know, hold on, this is it. This isn't. This isn't cool. Um, you know, I saw a comment of a day ago that said um, that the issue of black people's representation in the media and making certain movies uh, to sort of inspire. Um, people with black history is being tampered down by the quote-unquote Zionists. 
And this is from an African-American commentator on social media. And I'm just like, oh, my God. It's just, <laughs> you know, it, it's one thing to say, it's one thing to say Jewish. Nothing to say Zionist as Jewish. It's another thing to say both or, you know, someone even made the comment in that same thread. Well, if this is, you know, the, the, the Zionist, what's, what's up with the Jews? And like, I mean, it's, it was like, we can't win. We can't win. And I think it's because we have not truly embraced the idea of a common enemy of white supremacy, which is real and dangerous. Very and mean. much so. And um, it doesn't care if you are conservative, liberal, black, white, Jewish, not Jewish. It, it, it just, it just, it just it will eat you up. It will eat you up. And it eats up the souls and the spirits of the people who engage in it. So and unfortunately, we have to remind people all the time that just because you are Jewish or because you are black does not mean you don't participate in aspects of that belief system so, or way of being. So we have to we have to really work hard to amplify the voice of Jews of color. We have to work really hard to make sure they are seen and heard inside and outside the community. And we also have to work hard, I think to um, dispel some of these myths and rumors. I'm trying to do my best, but um, you can only do so much when the result of the last conflict that we had in flashpoints in, in media was that it came down to the same old, tired nonsense. All the Jews are white, all the blacks are Christian, and never the twain shall meet. You quote uh, Lenny Bruce's famous quote, all, all Negroes are Jewish, um, you know. <laughs> Um, I, I want to, in the book, and always has seemed evident to me, but obviously not to everybody, I want to finish with a couple of your favorite soul-affirming Jewish foods. Can you throw some out there? Sure. Kasha Vonska is, is one of my absolute favorite things. Barekas are absolutely one of my favorite things. Amazing stuff. I love barekas. And, of course, brisket. I would turn brisket into a West African brisket for the New York Times last Passover. So, so how did you make it West African? I, I didn't see the recipe. I want to know. Okay, so there are certain, everybody has the their trinity, for lack of a better term, of seasonings and spices and, and flavorings that you, you look at that and you go automatically, oh, fish sauce, garlic, ginger, Vietnam, right? Right. right. Or, or tomatoes, onions, peppers. Any number of cultures, yeah. but it's the proportion and the type that matters. So in West Africa, tomato, onion, pepper, plus ginger, garlic, turmeric, plus different spices and hot peppers make up um, a very typical flavor profile that's used, especially with proteins in fish, meat, fish, proteins. And so that's how I made that brisket have a very unique sort of like Ghanaian, Nigerian meat stew taste using the same ingredients but using them in the form that can cook with brisket so are you coming to my house for seder to make that brisket yes. that's my <laughs> biggest question that request has come across a lot i've been, <laughs> I've been blessed that people who have uh, very picky yeah yeah no not too spicy please yeah, I know, but you know I what know. everybody who's made it says it is an absolute hit i'm making it i'm sorry I, it's got to be Michael, I want to thank you so much for a great visit here on Two Jewish. Where can people go to find out more about you and uh, and about Kosher Soul? Sure. Afro Culinary is my blog. I'm not off the air as much these days, but I am still present. 
Kosher Soul on Twitter, um, The Cooking Gene on, on Instagram, and of course they can get the book from their favorite independent bookseller and barring that, um, Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Please support an author by buying retail, not secondhand. So please know that. So thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate you guys. And uh, look forward to having you on again. Thanks so much, Mike. All right. Have a good one. When we come back on To Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on To Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Daniel Gross, author of A Banker's Journey, How Edmund J. Safra Built a Global Financial Empire. And please join us at Congregation Beit Simcha each Friday night. Services in Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, too, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading and Kiddush. Services are live in person, of course, and available on our Facebook page. And don't miss our Purim for Grown Ups 2 Better Than Ever, a raucous celebration of the wonderful Jewish holiday when all restrictions are lifted. We drink, gamble, generally have a wild, fun time, including a great risque version of a musical told as the Purim story. Our play out this morning is for Purim in a couple of weeks, Kichlot Yeni, a Sephardic song about drinking wine on Purim as sung by the wonderful ensemble, The Voice of the Turtle. My friends, have a great rodeo week. Yeehaw! And a Shavuot Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of peace. Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.